Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma farers. Is the uh, volume okay on the microphone? A little louder? I'll try to speak up. I know my voice can be soft. I spend a lot of time in this hall, as I mentioned, and and in recent years, uh, quite a few years now, uh, I teach a lot here. And um, it seems for most of those retreats, we have this this tendency to schedule a, an evening talk, and uh, it almost always starts at seven thirty. And um, the other night, when I was giving my talk, I, I kind of forgot that I hadn't started at seven thirty. And and at one point, I was looking at the at the clock, and it said eight. And I thought, "Well, I'm doing great. It's only been a half an hour." And <laughs> and so I just kept uh, just kept humming along there, and. Uh, you know, I thought, wow, okay, I got done, you know, right around 45, 50 minutes, you know, that's, that's really reasonable considering the schedule and Narayan's very clear request that we uh, keep the talks to around that length. And, and, and my intention really is to keep my talks more on the brief side in, in this regard. And then uh, one of my colleagues very kindly uh, the next day informed me that I had spoken for more than an hour. <laughs> and... Uh, I truly had no idea. <laughs> so, you know, I am capable of going on and on, I know. But uh, anyway, I made myself a sign. It says, stop at 8 o'clock. And I've also asked uh, Narayan to actually use this, uh, this tool here to, to stab me, jab me in the ribs <laughs> if I don't stop. Uh, you know, she might give me a couple minutes past 8, but it'll... <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, anyway... Um, so we'll see what happens this evening. <laughs> it's said in one of the texts, and I think this is probably in the uh, <clears throat> the text called the Visuddhi Maga, that has a lot of kind of technical information uh, about the way practice and meditation tends to unfold from a certain perspective, at least. It's one of the commentaries. And... Um, it's there somewhere in one of the texts. It's said that there are four ways that as meditators, as, uh, as practitioners on this path, four ways that our practice tends to unfold. It's said that it's either um, progresses in a way that's slow but pretty easy, slowly but quite difficult, <laughs> quickly and difficult, or quickly and easily of those four, and, and the people tend to fall into one of those four groups. And, and I think probably most of us would put ourselves in the slow and difficult <laughs> category. I certainly would put myself there. But no matter how we might relate to this, this idea that we might see our, our, our path in terms of these, these categories, um, I think it's good to remind ourselves and to really have this sense that we're, we're moving in this direction of, uh, of peace, ease, of freedom. And we're really, um, you know, we, we have this, this intention that we're holding in our hearts, uh, having planted that seed, which is a rare and profound and beautiful thing in the world, to hold those aspirations in our mind, in one's mind in any way, not that many people are are putting this at the forefront in their lives. 
this is these are some words from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi that I, I really find uh, beautiful to reflect on. He once said he's a very famous uh, teacher, scholar, uh, monk uh, who's done a lot of the translations of the Buddhist texts, uh, beautiful translations. Uh, he he wrote this. Liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to blossom forth when there is steady and persistent practice. The only requisites for reaching the goal are two, to start and to continue. If these requirements are met, there is no doubt the goal will be attained. So we've all started. We start many times and we continue. And, you know, he doesn't put a, he doesn't say within three years or six months or whatever. There's not a time frame. The slow, difficult, quick, difficult categories come into play here. But this, this sense of this uh, uh, forward, forward leading, onward leading movement, uh, holding that and, and really reflecting on, it's not that we become complacent, there's work to be done. There is effort to be made. There is uh, perseverance required and steadiness and patience and all of these things that keep us going. But to really uh, bring to mind the, the goodness and the beautiful uh, and powerful uh, intentions that we form in the mind and the heart in our practice, all these beautiful seeds we're planting and to really see each moment of mindfulness is like a seed or a drop of water that's filling a, an urn. And we can't see how full that is. And we don't know when those seeds will sprout and bear fruit. And that's what we can do, is keep planting those seeds. So let's plant them with care and uh, real um, appreciation for the, the beauty of that. <clears throat> There's a book called The Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree by a famous Thai a monk and, and teacher named Ajahn Buddha Dasa. Some of you might have heard of him. And uh, I sometimes think if I were going to be stranded on a desert island, that would be, and, and could bring one text, Buddhist text, I might bring Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. It feels like it encapsulates the, um, the heart of the teachings. And that's really Ajahn Buddha Dasa's intention there. And in that uh, book, he suggests that the entirety of the Buddha's teachings can be summarized in one short phrase. And he draws on, a, on one of the suttas where you can see how he would uh, draw this from, from this from the words of the Buddha. Uh, and the, he uses four words in Pali, sabbe dhamma nalang abhinivesaya, which can be translated as nothing whatever is to be clung to. Nothing whatever is to be clung to. And uh, Buddha Dasa emphasizes the power of this teaching, again drawing on this reference from the suttas, where it's not quite so simply and directly put, but uh, you can read it in there. And he says, um, if you've heard this teaching, you've heard all of the teachings. If you've practiced these teachings, you've practiced all of the teachings. And if you've uh, realize the fruits of practicing this, you've realized all possible fruits of the Buddhist teachings. Nothing whatever should be clung to. 
And we could substitute uh, nothing should be uh, identified with as I, as me, or mine, or held on to, grasped. We could substitute different words for that, but the, the basic understanding is, is don't hold on to anything. Or you could phrase it, let go of everything. That's uh, a common way, often in the Thai forest tradition, they talk about letting, just let it all, letting it all go. And we've used these words of letting go. We have to be a bit careful. Maybe letting be is a, is a better way, because letting go has this sense of pushing away, perhaps, or, or tossing away. But Ajahn Chah, another Thai master, he summed this the same, uh, the same sense, the same. Uh, suggestion of a teaching in, in his usual very straightforward and kind of pithy way. In a, a very famous uh, three lines or th- phrases that he said once, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. So the same, uh, same teaching phrased in, in that way. And, and really, if we look in our practice, we're, we're exploring this sense of, of what this might actually mean in all kinds of ways, in ways that are gross and ways that are more subtle. It's woven throughout uh, what we're doing in, in our practice. And it really does go, you know, when he, Ajahn Buddha Dasa talked about this as being the heartwood of the Bodhi tree, the, the wakening tree, it, it goes to the core teaching in, in terms of the Four Noble Truths, and um, in which the Buddha talks about the cause of suffering, the fact that there is suffering, the fact that there's a cause, that there can be the release of that cause and the release of suffering and the path that leads to that. These are the Four Noble Truths. And, and in his uh, exposition, in his discussion of this, points very directly that it is this force of clinging, grasping in the mind and the heart that is the cause of suffering in our lives. So we are, we've been talking about that in various ways. This is the exploration. And really, you can look at everything the Buddha taught as being, which is volumes. <laughs> I don't know how many suttas there are. Do either of you know how many suttas there are in the, in the a thousand. about a thousand discourses in the Pali Canon? That's a lot. Over 40 years of teaching, and uh, in a way, it's all different ways of getting to this, <laughs> this thing, <laughs> different ways of talking about that. And so there's all kinds of ways one could explore that. I want to just touch on one, one way that I think we can, uh, hopefully many of us, maybe all of us, most of us will be able to see uh, the der- relationship of of grasping, clinging, holding on, and suffering in a very, in a very real and human and, and everyday kind of way. We see, we see this on, on very obvious ways and on very, very subtle ways. And as our path unfolds, the subtlety of this becomes quite incredible. The subtlety of this movement of the mind. But one way that I want to talk about tonight has to do with uh, clinging, grasping um, in relation to um, how we how we relate to um, past hurts that have come in our lives and painful memories that are associated with hurts uh, that we've uh, received or have been involved with in our lives. 
I know some of you have probably had the experience it's common um, on retreat at times, especially perhaps on longer retreats, but uh, often people uh, report having times when, when a lot of memories of their life will come up. And sometimes there'll be memories that uh, people say, I, they didn't even know, didn't even re- have that recollection that this thing had happened. Sometimes in the quiet and stillness, things come to the surface uh, quite profoundly. And sometimes um, some of these memories can be very difficult to be with. I, I remember, um, especially, I think this happened a lot on my first very long retreat, or long, pretty long retreat, of a three-month retreat that I was sitting uh, when I was very new to practice and um, had just been meditating for a few months. And, and I was flooded at one point with these memories. It was almost like kind of a, a review of my life. But what stood out at one point during this time was, uh, were a lot of memories about um, when I was a young, quite a young child and, and cruelty to uh, insects especially small beings as a, as a child, which is not an uncommon thing for little boys, especially probably, but a lot of kids. And um, there was so much pain and remorse in relation to, to what I had done. Very painful for me to see this. And um, it was interesting because I also was very kind at the same time. I used to, you know, I wasn't afraid of insects and animals and and I would rescue them and stuff, but I also there was a lot of cruelty at one point, and it was uh, it was very painful to see this and these these such strong feelings coming, um, and this is something that had happened long, long before, and yet it felt very, very present. You know, we can see how these memories can feel like it had just happened earlier that day almost. It's an, as an interesting aside. I seem to have uh, in my you know, adult life, I, I am famous uh, as the, I'm one of the favorite uh, foods of biting insects. <laughs> uh, they, they feed on me, um, and other people usually are quite safe if I'm around. Um, I have some friends who also get a lot of bites, but, um, you know, I've been bitten by ladybugs, which is, is kind of <laughs> a bit rare. And, and one time, I mean, it, I was in traveling in India with my, with my partner once, and we were staying in kind of a a dubious place, but we were middle of the night on a train. We had to find a place fast, and and I was just plagued by these uh, biting uh, bedbug type uh, giant fleas all night. And she just slept like a baby, <laughs> and would not have known they were there if I hadn't been getting up regularly to toss a few of them out the window gently, <laughs> you know, trying to remove them. You know, I was just covered with bites, and she had none. <laughs> But sometimes there are memories of, of harms and injuries that um, maybe things that we have done, like in, in these memories I'm just describing of my own, and uh, sometimes there are things that uh, may have happened to us. And the memories and, and the associations and the feelings there can uh, trigger these strong, strong uh, reactions, responses in the, in the heart and the mind sometimes. Um, and bring us right back, as in my description, it was as though it had just happened, um, even though the actual ac- activities had taken place years before. And so um, the practice of, of forgiveness 
can be extremely powerful and, and I think at times an essential possibility for us to consider in our lives in meditation um, that's really, really important to our happiness, uh, very much related to this uh, process of letting go. It's a very tangible, direct expression of, of release, of non-clinging. And it points to the possibility that we can release uh, the suffering that comes from holding on to past hurts and grudges and resentments and the hurt and the anger and, the re- and guilt that can be associated with that. And, um, you know, we can often see ways that there's a pattern of, of suffering, a cycle of suffering that, um, you know, we may, may see in our own minds and hearts at times, and certainly we may know of others who, who seem at times to be very caught in, in something in this regard. And, uh, you know, it points to the fact that there, there, to a great extent, we have a choice in terms of how we relate to uh, these things that have happened in our lives. We can uh, continue to hold on to them and carry the burden of the suffering that is there. And we can uh, choose to at least uh, move towards removing the weight of that burden, not feeding it, not keeping it going through resentment, anger, by uh, approaching this possibility of forgiveness. So a critical first step, if we're going to uh, consider this, look at this, the terrain of, of forgiveness, is um, to really actually acknowledge the truth of suffering. And this ties it back into the, the, the noble truths. The Buddha once said, I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So it's really looking to see that this is an aspect of life and, and acknowledging um, the reality of, the, of that, that it's not... Uh, not the whole story, but pain, sorrow, struggle, difficulty exist everywhere for all beings at times in ways that are quite large and uh, very small uh, everyday ways. And it's not a mistake and it's not wrong and it's not bad and it's not our fault and it's just a reflection of the way it is. It's part of life, part of the, the movement between joys and sorrows and pleasure and pain and gain and loss and all the rest, these worldly conditions. And part of this is to understand and acknowledge that sometimes we cause the suffering, sometimes others cause it, sometimes both, and sometimes it just happens. And it's not particularly fair. And it's not about fairness. Fairness doesn't come into this. There is a, a way that at times a difficult and uh, we could say a suffering relationship to the memory of past injury can, can be really tied into uh, wholesome instinctual responses of self-care and, and um, trying to avoid future injury. And, and I think memories, especially of hurts that we have received, are are processed and stored in the mind, in the heart, in the uh, neural network in a different way than a lot of other kinds of memories. And, and there are a lot of bells and whistles and alarms associated with things. And it's, it has to do with survival and self-protection, and it makes sense. 
but we see in the case of things like post-traumatic stress um, situations, you know, trauma situations where these, uh, these uh, memories are stored in such a way that they get triggered really easily and the response is, is very extreme at times. Um, and, and, and people get caught in trauma responses in these cycles where it just gets triggered again and again and again and it gets uh, caught in this uh, cycle that's, um, you know, in that extreme example where it's, it doesn't, it, it's very hard to let go of that, to release from that. Um, but part of that process might be in the terrain of forgiveness because it opens the door that we can start to actually let the past become the past. And it's not pushing it away or, or forgetting about it, but that we can let it become the past and find a way to live in the present with both some wisdom and ease and a sense of, of personal empowerment, of strength, inner strength. Because we can find ourselves stuck in cycles of suffering that gets so habituated and locked into our nervous systems that we're bound to these events that happened sometimes long, long ago. And I know many of you have seen this in your own minds and hearts and in those of uh, your family and loved ones. <clears throat> so there's a few things I want to say uh, about this and give some, some more reflections. But timing is a critical consideration when we're approaching the subject of forgiveness because we have to really be ready to, uh, to even consider the possibility. There has to be enough stability, a sense of safety, and, and um, yeah, enough strength, inner strength, that we can even consider it. Because sometimes it's not right, and we might actually be too close to a situation, especially if it's a situation where there's been real, some real, real harm done to us. And what we need to do, because sometimes we can move to forgiveness before it's the right time. And what we need to do is take care of ourselves and find um, ways to nurture and strengthen our own well-being or balance. Um, because it, it's not easy and it can be even scary to approach this sometimes, depending on the situation. And if we're feeling unsafe or in a weak place, we, we should not and cannot attempt it. One of my... Uh, friends and a colleague that some of you may uh, know, a teacher here named Winnie Nazarko. Uh, once she was talking on this subject and she said, in, in relation to this finding the right time, she said, sometimes you might have to begin the process, I'm paraphrasing what she said, but entertaining the possibility that you might perhaps at some point in the future maybe consider the idea of forgiving. They might have to start that far back. Okay, maybe, sometime, possibly, I'll consider it. I was uh, reminded of this incredible story as I was thinking about uh, this subject and, and uh, talking about forgiveness. It was a, a pretty incredible story that I'd like to share uh, part of it with you, of the, the potential power of of forgiveness. And this is a story that uh, had its beginnings in Minneapolis, in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1993. And uh, a woman there named Mary Johnson 
had a son named uh, Laramian, and he was killed in a gang-related altercation. He was a teenager. And there was a follow-up investigation to this shooting, and um, a 16-year-old boy named O'Shea Israel confessed to having, having done the killing, been the shooter. And um, a lengthy process of hearings and appeals and all kinds of things, and by the time it ever came to, uh, came to trial, he was 18, it was a night, two years later, and he was tried as an adult and convicted of second degree murder and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And um, Mary Johnson, the mother of the, the boy who had been killed, said, um, I wanted him locked up and caged because to me he was an animal and that's what he deserved. That's, that was her feeling at that time. And then she said that she worked on on the possibility of forgiveness over um, 10 years, the next 10 years. She was a very religious person. She uh, worked in her church and with her, her spiritual uh, guides there and uh, the support of others and through prayer. And, and she felt over time that, that she was starting to uh, transform in some way in relation to this event, this tragic event. And meanwhile, the, the young man who was in prison was doing his own work around what he had done. And, um, you know, he was, he was undergoing his own transformation. I don't have so much story about that time for him. But in 2005, so that's 10 years later, after the trial, 12 years after the, the uh, killing, she uh, felt that if she had forgiven this, this man, this young man who'd uh, killed her son, and she said, I have to make sure I have really forgiven him, that I don't still have all that hatred. And so she, um, she, wanted to, she decided she would try to visit him in jail. And she made repeated attempts to get him to let her come uh, over nine months. She tried many times, and he didn't want to meet with her at first, but he finally agreed. And she said, um, we had a conversation, and he admitted what he had done. And I said, look. I told you in court that I forgave you. So apparently she did say that back then, but it wasn't, she discovered it wasn't true. <laughs> and over these 10 years, she, she really worked on this. She said, but today I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, and I really want you to know this, that I do forgive you. And O'Shea uh, Israel, the man who was in prison said, it was very powerful and moving. And I felt compelled to, to, uh, to ask her if I could give her a hug. I said, may I give you a hug to show her my genuineness? Because he, he genuinely you know, had true remorse for this action that had come out of the confusion and suffering that was in his mind at that time. And uh, she said, I remember falling and he had to hold me up. And I felt this thing leave me. And I instantly knew that all that hatred and bitterness and animosity and all that junk that I'd held inside me for 12 years, at that moment I knew it was done with, over. It was gone. So she had this kind of cathartic experience there in that meeting. But the thing that was incredible is that after that they began to meet on a regular basis. And this relationship almost of a mother and son developed between them. And he got out, uh, must have been on parole, in 2012, so he'd been there since 1995, so 12 years, is that 12 years? Yeah. 
No, 17. Anyway, a long time. My math skills, not so good this time of night. And she introduced him to the landlord in the building where she lived, and he got an apartment, uh, eventually moved into the same building. They became neighbors. And in uh, one point, they were having a conversation that was, uh, they're kind of being interviewed in conversation. And, and she said to him, I treat you as I would treat my own son. My own son is no longer here, and I didn't see him graduate. But you're going to college now, and I'll have the opportunity to see you graduate, I hope. I didn't see him getting married, but hopefully one day I'll be able to experience that with you. And then she said, unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. The forgiveness is for me. That's, that's something really important and powerful there. That's, that's the forgiveness being for, for her in this case. It's really about taking care of ourselves, this internal process and points to the fact that ultimately in great in a great way we are responsible for our own well-being and we have personal responsibility for working out our own freedom and salvation you could say and when we hold on to resentment grudges and hurts we're letting the past dictate who we are right now in the present and we lose a lot of our personal power when we do this and we lose sight of the fact that how we feel ultimately, at least to a very great extent, is not dependent on outer conditions. <coughs> that we have a choice and it's really up to us. And, and when she said the last thing that I, I read from Mary Johnson, that, that this is for me, that it doesn't change what he did, that's, that's still on him. That this is for me. It points out that it does not free us or another from, from what we could think of as the karmic weight or the, the responsibility for actions that, that another or that we may have done. It's, doesn't, it's not for that. <laughs> to be very, this is really a critical understanding. We, we take responsibility for our actions. We all have to do our own work in this regard. And O'Shea Israel said, I haven't forgiven myself yet. I'm learning to forgive myself. I'm still growing towards trying to be able to forgive myself. This is the, the young man who, who has basically has an adopted mother. I think his, both his parents were not in his life, maybe not even alive anymore, his, his birth parents. So we really have to bear in mind and be careful when we approach the idea of, of uh, asking for forgiveness if it's something that we have done and we're asking someone to consider forgiving us, that we're not putting some weight of responsibility on them for, for actions that we've done. That we're trying to, to you know, get, get that absolved somehow. We have to take care and take responsibility and harm we, for harm we may have caused. And, and uh, what we need to do is Offer an apology, make amends if we can do that. Offer that in the way that he offered his, his uh, in the story. You know, he, he offered 
he said, I am, I'm sorry, I did do this thing. And, and he offered that, offered what he could in that regard. And we need to bear in mind, if we do ask for forgiveness for something we have done, harm we have caused, we have to do that knowing that the other person may not be in a position and they may not be ready to forgive us. We can't expect that they will do that. We do, we have our side of that and that's all we can do. And so there's, there's some important things uh, in terms of the difference between what we could think, what guilt and what we might call wise remorse in terms of actions that we have done, where we have been the one causing the harm. Guilt just locks us in a cycle of, that doesn't go anywhere, just like a self-flagellation, I'm so bad, I'm so bad. Wise remorse, we acknowledge and take responsibility for something we may have done and harm we may have caused. And with the intention and strong determination, let me be more careful, let me be more mindful, let me not do this again. So there's this, the taking of responsibility, but we're holding it in a way that allows us to actually move forward with it. And we're not just using it as a, as a way to uh, beat ourselves up and stay locked in, in suffering. And this story also points to another critical consideration is that forgiveness never means that we condone unskillful actions. Some actions are and never will be forgivable. We're not forgiving actions. What we're trying to do in forgiving is forgiving a confused, suffering mind and heart, forgiving a suffering being whose state of mind led them to do an action out of confusion, out of pain, out of unbridled greed or whatever it might have been. That may have been in, had the upper hand in the mind. We can consider that. But certain actions, it's never about forgiving unforgivable actions or condoning unskillful actions, harmful actions. And it may not mean fixing broken relationships. That may not come. We may even be in a situation where we have to set really clear boundaries. I'm not going there. I can't have anything to do with you. But I don't have to have this, uh, hold on to this anger, resentment, this grudge. We don't have to keep someone out of our heart. There can be compassion and clear boundaries in terms of it's not necessarily going to fix this. We can let go of the weight of the resentment. And sometimes it's really useful, and I notice this, I've seen this uh, operating in, in my own mind at times, um, least in the past, where is to look where the suffering is in a situation because sometimes we can hold on to resentments and grudges for hurts that have come to us with kind of um, as though somehow we're punishing the other person. I'll show you, I'm not going to forgive you. And they're just fine and we're the ones who are suffering. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's really look and see where is the suffering. This is something we're doing to take care of ourselves. You know, we all can look, I think, in our, in our lives, reflect on our lives, 
and see times and know what it is to act from a place of pain and confusion. We can see times when our actions were born of intense desire or confusion or ill will and hatred had the upper hand in our mind. At least I can see, I can reflect back on this. And, and when, they, um, when those things have the upper hand, then the actions that follow from them, just, this is just the nature of things, this is cause and effect, will reflect that. Will reflect that. All, all actions have their genesis in the mind. The Buddha spoke to this in a famous quotation and verse from the Dhammapada. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind, in, mind is chief, they're all mind made. If one speaks or acts, with a pure heart, I'm getting this out of order, with, a, with unskillful, uh, impure heart, with unwholesome energy in the heart, then unhappiness follows as surely as uh, the wheel of the cart follows the foot of the ox. And if one speaks or acts with a pure mind from a wholesome intention, happiness follows like one's uh, never departing shadow. It's just cause and effect. I didn't uh, I didn't uh, say that quote exactly right, but you get the idea. And for some people, the amount of suffering and confusion in their mind is beyond anything we have ever experienced and probably beyond anything we can imagine. And the actions that follow from that can be very, very extreme. But underneath that is a suffering being who's trying, like we are, to figure out how to be happy. That's hard to, to see sometimes, but sometimes we can, we can uh, find this compassion as a doorway here, compassion for the suffering mind, for the confused mind that gave rise to actions. And we can start to forgive that through this doorway of compassion, not the actions that may have occurred there. So that's a very important um, distinction to make. Uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke directly to this in this short quotation. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. One who is devoid of the power to, to, to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. This is another quotation that was attributed to, uh, where I found it, to the actress Lily Tomlin. Forgiveness means giving up all hope of a better past. Which is kind of humorous, and she's a, a humorist, but, but there's something really, um, really true in that. You know, we can't get a better past. We can give up all hope of a better past and at the same time release, release the burden of hauling it around with us in an unskillful, painful way. It's like dragging a corpse around behind us everywhere we go. <clears throat> so 
there's a teaching from the Buddha that's very simple. It seems so obvious when we hear it, but it's, it's really powerful. He once said, that which one frequently thinks about and reflects upon becomes the inclination of the mind. We can see how habitual patterns of thought get formed if we think about how this would work. If we think about something a lot, the tendency to keep thinking about it or to think about it again is very, it's like wearing a neural groove and neural pathway and you look at it that way. This habituating and um, he spoke to this in, in these lines again from the Dhammapada. He abused me, he beat me, he defeated me, he robbed me. In those who dwell on such thoughts, hatred will never cease. He abused me, he beat me, he defeated me, he robbed me. In those who do not dwell on such thoughts, hatred will cease. And these two lines precede this uh, beautiful, famous uh, words, quotation that Narayan uh, spoke the other night. For hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone does hatred cease. This is the eternal law. And when we dwell on thoughts of past hurts and grudges and, and cling to the stories and the resentments there, it's not that we deny that these things happen, but we, we shift our relationship to them. Because we're, we just condition the tendency for them to come up again and again. And they reinforce the cycle of pain and suffering that may be constellated around uh, the stories of past hurts. But through this practice of forgiveness, we can start to shift these patterns, shift these uh, thought patterns, and start to uh, release this and actually retrain the mind through the power of compassion kindness and wisdom. So it's important to bear in mind that this is, uh, this possibility and the process of forgiveness is just that, it is a process. It doesn't come from an act of will. It doesn't happen just because we've decided that it's a good idea and we're gonna do it. It might take a while. It was a 10 year process in the story that I shared of the uh, woman, Mary Johnson, with her son and, and, and her son's killer. And I think uh, this image that I started the, the talk with this evening of planting seeds is really a beautiful one to hold in mind in terms of uh, something like forgiveness, especially where we have this aspiration and intention to work in this arena. And we are planting those seeds. And that's, that's really the crucial first step there. And the potential power of, of an intention in the mind and heart is huge. It can shape, it's amazing how it can shape the course of our life and take things in such a different direction. And just as you could, this image of a seed, a single seed, it's kind of amazing. You walk in the woods around here, I don't know, a little early, but later in the fall, the acorns start to fall from the oak trees around here. And, they're everywhere in a good year. And there's little acorns. One of those can produce one of those huge trees. And the tree will produce thousands of acorns. Each one of them capable of producing another tree. Just that one seed, what that could lead to over time, is unbelievable. 
And if a seed falls in the right spot, it can sprout and spread and those roots in that tree can crack a rock, a huge rock. You've seen them. A whole rock can be split. The power of that seed. Well, the intentions that we form in our mind in all the different ways that we do. The intentions of kindness and care in metta. The intentions of uh, cultivating wisdom and love. The intentions of forgiveness. Same potential power and shift things in a, in a dramatic way. So, uh, here I am at 7.59. There's a, I'm going to go over. <laughs> There's a practice in, in the, the, many of the monasteries where I've spent time in, over the years. When one is taking leave, whether or not one has anything specific in mind, when one is leaving, one um, goes through a kind of uh, beautiful ritual and offers these uh, phrases like this. To those whom I may have caused harm, knowingly or unknowingly, through my thoughts, words, or actions, I ask you to consider forgiving me. To those who may have caused me harm, knowingly or unknowingly, through their thoughts, words, or actions, I freely offer my forgiveness as best as I'm able at this time. And for any harm I may have caused myself, knowingly or unknowingly, through my thoughts, my words, my actions, I offer my forgiveness. I forgive myself as best as I can at this time. Some words to that, that uh, in this, you know, one would come up with one's own way of expressing them, with a sense of, of offering, asking for um, this possibility touching this possibility for things one may have done, for things that one uh, may have, uh, harms that one may have hurt, and especially importantly, ways that we may have harmed and hurt ourselves. So I'll stop there this evening and uh, we can have just a moment of quiet before I ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. And we have uh, most of uh, 
45 minutes, a little less, for some walking meditation in the beautiful evening. And we'll gather for uh, uh, the chanting, which has really been, I don't know, those of you who haven't come, it's been really pretty nice in here for the <laughs> chanting. It's uh, quite lovely. So you might, if you haven't come and you feel like you have the energy, you might consider it. It's quite uh, quite nice way to end the day. So please be welcome for that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.